from the National Society of Genetic Counselors, this is the NSGC podcast series. Exploring stories of leading voices and best practices in genetic counseling. Now to your hosts, Kalita Leaquat and Kate Wilson. Welcome to the NSGC podcast series. We're your hosts, Kate Wilson. And Kalita Leaquat. As we wrap up season two of the podcast series, we wanted to take a moment to thank our listeners. Because of you, we have been able to reach the genetic counseling community in a fun and educational format for two full seasons now. We have reached over 10,000 total episode downloads. Thank you for tuning in each month. Your support drives this podcast series. Let's dive into today's episode, where Kalita and I hand over the microphone to our guests, who spoke with one another at the annual conference in Salt Lake City, Utah, on the evolution of our profession. And now, over to Bonnie Beatty and Katie Bergstrom. Hi, everybody. This is Bonnie Beatty. I am a retired genetic counselor, and my latest claim to fame is uh, I'm a co-founder of the late career SIG of NSGC. I spent my career at the University of Utah. And I'm Katie Bergstrom. I'm a graduate of the University of Utah, which is how I met Bonnie. Um, Now I am a genetic counselor at Seattle Children's Hospital and also the chair of the membership committee of NSGC. Great. So, Katie, I get the first question for you. What I was wondering is graduate school is challenging. It's constantly challenging. It's just one thing after another. But I've wondered what challenges you faced since graduation? What are your biggest challenges in about the three years since you've graduated? Time flies, Bonnie. It's been seven years. What? (laughs) But it does. It does. And I think when you graduate and you go into your first position, you are fresh with your diploma, hopefully your certification, and I think a healthy dose of enthusiasm. And then there's so much more on-the-job training that I just didn't expect. I felt fully ready and prepared and hit the workforce. But then in terms of if you specialize more more particularly than just more general practice, but then also just in professionalism, navigating relationships with your peers, with your supervisors, it there was, there was a lot to learn, I think, still. And it, it's so rewarding to be in a place, and hopefully everyone finds themselves in that, to continue. And we, we talk about that genetic counselors are lifelong learners, but I think you really hit the ground running uh, right out of graduation. I think there's also the element of finding your own identity as a professional. You're very settled into your identity as a student. I'm a first year, I'm a second year, and then suddenly you're not in that space anymore. You're a professional, you're a member of NSGC, you are your your specialty type of counselor, and so shedding that student label, and I think maintaining your confidence in your expertise, but then also having a, a good level of humility as well as there's still new things to learn along the way. I think I could ask you the same question as kind of now looking back what you would say your challenges were out of grad school and I imagine they'd be a little bit different. Mine are very individual focused and I think being earlier on in the profession as almost a pioneer you faced a lot of different challenges. You're right. Although I faced the same challenges too and I think there's a learning curve for everybody so that But I think for early genetic counselors, and for me in particular, there were two big challenges that I don't think you face as much today. The first is gaining respect, gaining respect. And that I was thinking about what does that mean? Does that mean with our colleagues? Because certainly that was there. 
if you think people don't know what genetic counselors are now, <laughs> they certainly didn't in the, in the 70s when mm -hmm. I started working. So um, I developed some tricks for um, gaining respect from my colleagues. And actually one of them is humility, but the other one is kind of standing up for you, for, in a quiet way for your knowledge. So I think um, if genetic counselors today stand on the shoulders of other genetic counselors, as they will in the future, um, the challenges will change. The second thing um, about respect is gaining the respect of patients, mm -hmm. and I think this is probably still an issue because I was very young-looking, and I've had this discussion with many students if they also are very young-looking. How do you um, project your authority in a quiet way without, um, without overstepping, but just kind of maintaining I, I know what I'm talking about in a very balanced way that you just convince your patients by the way you counsel and what you know. Mm -hmm. So um, that's probably not changed too much. And then the second big area was finding a job. So <laughs> I graduated in the early 70s, and nobody knew what a genetic counselor were. There were no jobs. I found myself finishing school in Colorado and then moving to Utah where there were no genetic counselors. And I scoured around and found somebody who said, tell me what a genetic counselor is. And I told him what a genetic counselor was, and he said, I could use one of those. <laughs> and he hired me for not very much money. So I think the vast array of jobs that are out there now are thrilling to people like me who um, come from an era where that was not the case. Absolutely. You get some credit for your responsibility, being the first genetic counselor in Utah, founding and being the first program director of the Utah program paving the way for all of us to come through and, and learn from your experience. Yeah. You know, genetic counselors today that are starting out are often the first in some other way, mm -hmm. very commonly. So actually, another area I wanted to explore with you was um, in the program at the University of Utah, we talked about leadership, and we felt like it was important to convey and maybe I shouldn't put words here in your mouth, but a wide definition of what a leader could be and different ways to lead. And so I wonder if when you got out of school, from when you got out of school to now, because you've chosen to step into leadership roles, if your ideas about what leadership is have changed. Absolutely, and especially the program had a nice uh, balance. We had, did have formal leadership roles as well. I was my class representative at the time and really had ownership of that title and, and appreciated that. And again, as I developed my new identity, once I left that formal role as a student and as a young professional, um, adapting it, and I, I will say that the NSGC leadership development course is very instrumental, but we've also seen this underlying theme throughout this conference that leadership is more than just a title. And so I really do come to appreciate that it's this set of skills that you may either consciously or unconsciously apply in any situation. I could see it just with your giving or soliciting feedback with your peers or colleagues. Sometimes if you're just in a meeting and a colleague shares an idea, just backing them up and endorsing their idea or allowing them space to be heard. It could be right now we're talking about the federal bill um, on behalf of NSGC and advocating the federal bill to your representative, stepping up in a, in a different way on behalf of our entire profession. But yes, you might not have a title to be doing that. And it, it, it's been really exciting to see where that once you get beyond the title, where that can take you. So I want to go back, though, and ask, has, have your ideas changed since, is that different from your idea of leadership when you came out of school? 
I think it's more clearly, it's more clear to me now. Okay. I think as you're scrambling to get your first position, you're just, I at least defined myself by that title of that position and got caught up in the words of that, my identity, as I would define it. But I think it's just more broad now and more organic, if you will. And more rich. Is, is Absolutely. What depth, yeah. yes. More depth to it. I wanted to talk also in reference to this year's conference and last year's conference and thinking back to last year's podcast, um, Andy Fawcett and Janet Williams shared their experience immediately leading up to their retirement. And now, as you shared in your introduction, you've had a slightly different experience and now that you've um, had a a few years now immediately following your retirement. And I'm I'm curious about how your experience has been. Okay, well, (laughs) I think about this in a couple of ways. I think the first thing that strikes me is that there really is a transition to retirement. And when we thought about the late career SIG, we were thinking about at least that stage of your career and when you're thinking about retiring, but maybe it's, it could be years off, really. And I, I think people vary in terms of how they plan that. But however they plan it, there's a huge transition when you actually retire. And this is probably, I'm sure it's true in any field. So um, for me, the transition was not hard. Um, I was involved with some national activities that I just kept up, Mm -hmm. and um, it gave me a way to still feel like I was contributing to the field, and that was helpful. I think not every position is like that. In some some ways, uh, academic positions have a lot of precedent for people retiring slowly or retiring and keeping an oar in the water, and I'm, I'm wondering about genetic counselors that work, say, in hospitals or in industry, I think it would be nice to have more paths um, to transition to what I'm thinking of now as active retirement. And I cannot believe there's a genetic counselor on the face of the earth that would not be an active retiree <laughs> because they're just, it's such a dynamic group of people. And I think we all have things in our private lives that we're eager to spend more time doing. But I also mean active retirement in terms of keeping in touch with our profession. If you think about the identity of genetic counselor, you don't check that at the door when you retire. At least I didn't, and I I think many people would like to not do that. So so transition. I've already touched on the second thing, which is more time for the activities that you always wanted to do. I I don't have to rush back after a weekend to teach a class now. Um, I have to say I don't miss that piece. (laughs) (laughs) And I I just thirdly wanted to give a plug for the late career SIG because um, I think that it's filling a gap for genetic counselors to think more about actually middle and late career and some of the issues that uh, are are particular to to later phases in career. And I just think it's going to give us more options um, for people to think about and and to participate in activities that are still meaningful and still within NSGC as well. I feel like you've coined an, either a new hashtag in your active retirement or maybe a ribbon for next year's conference and a members of the late career SIG can identify in such a way. Because I think you're right that genetic counselors will never truly not be active in their retirement or any stage of their career. Well, thanks. <laughs> Just thinking a little bit about the future, we, we touch a lot on the past and the present and maybe a little on the future, but 
What do you imagine the biggest change will be in genetic counseling in the next 10 years, or some of the biggest changes? Have you thought about that? Oh, absolutely. In a leadership role, as we've talked about, I, I almost feel a little bit of the burden in laying, continuing to lay the groundwork for future generations in the way that we've talked about that your generation has done that for us, for our students and us in the field now. And um, one really inspiring outcome of this conference is that we can see that I think it was a fourth of the attendees of this conference are here for the first time and they're new genetic counselors and new in the field. We're also seeing, I think, increased access to genetic counselors in that we now have reached 5,000 certified genetic counselors and over 50 accredited programs. And so in the past, I know access to genetic counselors and resources in our field has been a limitation. And as we continue to train these people and, and release them into the work, workforce, I'm excited to see which paths uh, they pursue, whether it's in um, healthcare, industry, research, or even policy. And then along those lines, I think very prevalent right now is our conversations around diversity, equity, and inclusion. And very, I'm very hopeful that a lot comes of this, whether it's internal to our profession, but then external with how we interact with the rest of the consumers, the healthcare industry, and, and everyone. And so I'm hopeful right now that we're laying this groundwork for a very successful future. I'd be curious on your, your take on the next 10 years as well. So one of the things I was thinking about is it, it kind of piggybacks on what you just said, um, and that is that, you know, to hope that we find ways to bring more diversity into the field. For a long time I've been thinking about the professionalization of genetic counseling, and I've written about that um, and thought about it a lot. I think that most of the, the milestones that make a profession a profession have mostly occurred for mm -hmm. us. I mean, all the things that we've talked about at this meeting and in many other places, um, we have them. And, of course, NSGC has been a big part of that, but there are other things, um, accreditation, licensure, um, just the maturation of the field, having subspecialties, on and on. I think what is still ahead of us, even though we feel like we've we're in a growth phase and that the trajectory has kind of taken off, mm -hmm. both in terms of programs, so our trainees, but also in terms of genetic counselors, I think we're going to see an even bigger explosion. And I've thought that by looking at other professions that started small and then there was a point where there was almost a bottleneck and then it just took off. And that offers us a lot of opportunities, and you know some of them lie in the area of diversity, mm -hmm. and diversity very widely defined. I think there are a lot of people who didn't want to come into our tent because this was not their culture, and as this field expands, our culture is going to expand, and so I think you know there's going to be room for different types of viewpoints and, and diversity of all different types. So that would be one thing as I see this big explosion in growth. That, that's kind of a no-brainer. Secondly, um, I wonder about, we've moved from kind of general, big general things that we've had for a long time, like prenatal, eventually cancer developed, you know, p um, pediatrics, adult, so on. And then we kind of moved into subspecialty clinics in a big way in subspecialty fields. But we haven't moved too much into primary care. We have somewhat. And I wonder if that's going to also take off. You know, are, are we going to have um, genetic counselors doing primary care? I think we already do a little bit, but I wonder if that's going to be a, a big thing in the next 10 years. 
we talked a little bit about this meeting too about integration of healthcare models and technology and incorporating technology into our practice, like chatbots and AI to expand services across even probably primary care. But I also think we're talking too about how do we adapt our educational models to address that too. And obviously, your work with the program, I consider you an expert in education. So thinking about that and how education will change in the future too, or how do you teach to the future? What would you say to that? Oh, that is such a hard one. <laughs> um, I've thought a lot about it because there have been many times in my teaching activities that I, you would see something coming, like you would see new technologies coming or you would see just whole areas coming and have no idea how to teach to it. <laughs> I don't really know that I have a good answer for that. My, one of my strategies has been to team up with students to think about it. So instead of saying, I'm going to teach a class on, say, AI, I'm just throwing this out, which I know very little about, I might partner with students who might know more about it or have more tools to figure it out. And together, we'd put our heads together and figure out how we would teach about a topic which is not exactly here, but is coming. Um, so I, the other idea I have is maybe bring in people from other areas. So there, there are stakeholders in all of this, and some of them, many of them are not genetic counselors. So I wonder if we can bring people um, into our classrooms and our continuing education. I guess we are doing that. And um, to talk more about what's the cutting edge and what they see and put all putting our heads together. So I think it's kind of a team effort. Yeah, but I don't have any other strategies besides <laughs> that. Do you? But it sounds like that also creates space and opportunity for people to pursue what they're passionate about and maybe develop an avenue of expertise or subspecialties we talk about it or expand our knowledge and interest in different ways when you look up, kind of think outside the box or look outside the box. So, Katie, this has been really fun having this discussion I am passionate about being a genetic counselor. I have, I have always loved being a genetic counselor. I feel like incredibly privileged to have sat in one place and watched the field change around me. I had, I had to run sometimes to keep up with it. And I am so happy to see people like you also passionate about being a genetic counselor and in your own way, you know, with your own distinct passions. So thanks for this conversation. I appreciate Bonnie. It's been such an honor to come back to where I trained and just see not having been in one place, seeing, seeing the change, having been a little bit removed from it, and celebrating the 40 years of our profession here together. Next up, Michelle Takimoto and Sylvia Mann discuss diversity in our profession, where it's been and where it is going. Hi, I'm Sylvia Mann, and I am from Chinese ancestry, and I graduated from Sarah Lawrence College in 1988, and I currently work at the Hawaii Department of Health. Hi, I'm Michelle Takemoto. I also work at the Hawaii Department of Health, and I graduated from the University of Minnesota program in 2015, and I'm of black and Japanese ancestry. Um, so, Sylvia, I know we haven't really had a chance to talk about your background and experience during your training. Um, so what was that like for you, especially as a minority? So I went to Sarah Lawrence College, and uh, I grew up in Vancouver, Canada. So I went from University of British Columbia, which is very diverse. 
to Sarah Lawrence College, and in my class we had, um, out of 22 students, we had four minority students, including myself, and so it wasn't that um, strange to me. And then, you know, our rotations and our internships, New York is extremely diverse, Mm -hmm. so it was not very different from growing up in Vancouver and going to school at University of British Columbia. So really, diversity in my training program and where we went to school was very diverse, so I never had any problem with that. It was more of a difference between being a Canadian in an American school mm-hmm. than it was being Chinese <laughs> in, a, in a counseling program. Um, so that was what it was like for me. So what was your experience when you were going to school in, in Minnesota? Um, Well, I had done my original undergraduate in Minnesota years ago. I came to GC as a midlife career change. Um, So I already sort of, I knew what the demographics of Minnesota were like, so that wasn't a surprise. I was able to find um, diverse groups of people on my own outside of the program, um, so I was able to find support that way. But it was much more reflective of the genetic counseling profession at large as far as the percentages of minorities. How have you found that things have changed over time, over your career? So my um, first job was in Hawaii, Mm -hmm. and I'm still in Hawaii. Mm -hmm. Uh, So obviously in Hawaii it felt very much at home because Mm -hmm. um, Asians are the ethnic majority in Mm -hmm. Hawaii. I think that I didn't get a reality check till I went to my first NSGC conference Mm -hmm. pretty soon after I started working, Mm -hmm. and... I was shocked mm-hmm. because I did not see an, another minority person um, in the crowd <laughs> of mm-hmm. lots and lots of Caucasian women. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's when I first realized that I'm a very, very minority in this profession. Mm-hmm. And then um, I think over the years, though, I have seen more and more minorities enter the profession, and we see more diversity in the conferences and as genetic counselors, but I still see um, that we are not a huge group. So Mm -hmm. it's grown over the years, but really has not expanded like the other professions that I Mm -hmm. see, health professions I see that have a much more diverse um, population in the profession. Mm So um, you haven't graduated that long ago. Have Mm -hmm. you seen uh, much change in diversity since you've entered the field? Um, Actually, yeah, so it's been four years now, and I do feel like coming to conferences I have seen more diversity. Um, I actually had a conversation with someone yesterday who's been in the career longer, and he was saying, yeah, at the beginning it was very isolating, and now he feels like there, there are more people, and he doesn't feel like there's he feels like he can find his peers. But at the same time, you know, walking around at a conference, it's like, oh, yeah, it's still pretty homogenous. So it's improving, but there's still a way to go. Yeah. So I know we've we've been doing some things in our program, but, you know, from your perspective, why was it important to start activities supporting um, increased ethnic and racial minorities in our profession? 
Well, one of the things is that since I'm project director for one of the regional genetics networks in the country um, to help increase access to genetic services for underserved populations, our region chose minority populations as a definitely underserved population. Mm -hmm. And one of the ways that we decided to reach minority populations is to get more genetics professionals that look like the communities we want to serve, speak their language, and know their culture. Mm -hmm. And so I think that that grew into figuring out activities to try to get more minorities actually into genetics professional um, roles. And one of the big roles is becoming genetic counselors because they spend the most time with a patient. And I think that um, when we did that, we decided that we would create this network, the uh, Minority Genetic Professionals Network, to try to support students that might want to come into the profession that don't know about genetic counseling. Um, in the meantime, as we were doing this and looking for mentors, we found that current genetics professionals that were minorities were also seeking support. So we expanded the network so that current genetic counselors who are minorities have a network of support. Mm -hmm. um, well, speaking of MGPN, since you are head of the project, <laughs> how's it going? Um, it's going really well. We launched about a year ago, and we are now at about th over 300 people in our database. Yeah, we have found that there's, there's great hunger for mentorship, um, both from mentees and from mentors who are wanting to reach back to younger generations to try to um, encourage more people to come into the field. So we've had we've had graduate students, um, people who are trying to apply to GC programs, who are looking for guidance. Um, we've had we've we've been surprised by the number of students who are looking for guidance on developing their thesis topics around issues of diversity. And so I think we may have a more coordinated effort across different thesis topics to make sure there's a, a good, solid uh, body of work around diversity in our profession. You know, now, now that we can find each other and now that there's a way for us to have these conversations, there has not been a way for minorities in our profession to even find each other up until now. So the MGPN is open to you know, all genetic professionals and prospective genetic professionals. And so that's a way for us to work together. And I think it's a good time um, to address the issue because workforce is such a big deal in the genetics profession mm -hmm. with so few um, people in the profession and such a great need. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, with Congress asking for a report on genetics professionals and what the workforce is, how we're going to meet the need. Mm -hmm. I think it's a really good time to let minorities know that this is a viable profession. Mm -hmm. And I think when we were at the last conference, um, the Society for the Advancements of, of Hispanics, Chicanos, and Native Americans in mm -hmm. science, the students were wonderful. And they mm -hmm. were so surprised about the profession mm -hmm. and that they would never have trouble finding a job. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and at the salary that was um, available, they had no clue, mm -hmm. um, but were very happy, and I was very pleased that they were all very happy to learn about the counseling profession and, and what you can do. So it was really interesting to talk to a lot of postdoc students um, or people working on their PhDs 
who, who were not aware of genetic counseling as a profession, and you could see this look in their eyes like, oh, I wish I had known about that before I went down this path, you know, telling them it was a two years master's. Um, and it would be something where they would be working directly with people. So I think, I think we may have turned a couple of people, <laughs> which was nice. But yeah, as far as the MGPN and our members, you know, when, when we first, you know, when I first make contact with people, seeing the looks on their faces and just telling them, you know, you're not alone. And I mean, some people, I walk up to them and I give them the information and they're near tears immediately. Um, so that's been really striking. Yeah. Striking and gratifying, I think. Yeah. It's to offering something that obviously was really needed. Right. Um, and it's and it's regrettable that it's that strong a reaction in the first place, but at least at least we're here now. <laughs> yeah. Yes. yes. <laughs> so what other activities are, are you thinking about towards the future? So um we're hoping that as we get more minorities in genetic professions, one of our other big um, activities, of course, is telegenetics um, training mm-hmm. and training genetics professionals to actually use telegenetics because a lot of communities, especially like Native American mm-hmm. um, reservations, places like that, don't have easy access to an urban genetic center. Mm-hmm. And so telegenetics would be a really great way for these isolated communities, or not even isolated, but more insular communities to be able to receive genetic services. And I'm hoping that um, we can get more uh, Native Americans, Alaska Natives, Mm -hmm. Native Hawaiians to become genetic counselors so that they can serve their own communities. Mm -hmm. And as one of the things that we're working towards is we're starting a genetic counseling training program aimed at minorities and really aimed at trying to get more of the non-westernized minority students to come into profession because Mm -hmm. you and I are very westernized Mm -hmm. minorities, but a lot of minorities live in communities that aren't as westernized as you and I are, and Mm -hmm. they have to be able to speak the language, know the culture, work with the community, and we'd like to get more of those minorities into the profession. So I think we have a lot of work ahead of us. Yes, yes we do. Um, And besides, besides providing support for students and current professionals, Professionals. Um, I'm looking forward to our network being able to reach back to our communities and provide education about genetic services um, and, and make hopefully make people more comfortable about genetic services. Yes, I think and a that, lot of minority populations have questions mm-hmm. about how their data is going to be used mm-hmm. and if they're going to be discriminated oh, yeah, against. And I think that um, our group will be able to help do some good educational efforts to the communities to explain um, what they're consenting to, number Mm -hmm. one, and what they can refuse Mm -hmm. and what they can um, accept if they feel like it in research. Um, Because one of the big issues that I always worry about is that if minority populations don't participate in the current Mm -hmm. research, the research results will not apply to Mm -hmm. them. It will all apply to whoever participates in research, which currently is mostly Caucasian people. Mm-hmm. And so I think they need, uh, minority communities need a good 
uh, understanding of what it means to participate in research and good research protection so they can take advantage of mm -hmm. the outcomes of the research and all the money that's going into the research. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was. I was really glad that we went to the SOCDES conference because we had the chance to hear about research being done in Native populations about their attitudes towards genetic testing and genetic research and learning about how much it varies across tribes um, and across generations. So it's not just one homogenous group of people with one particular attitude. Um, and it was also encouraging to learn about uh, native biobanking that's happening. You know, populations take, con communities taking control of their own data um, so that they can be more comfortable about sharing it and how it gets shared. That's right. And I think we had um, a Native American woman come up very interested in genetic counseling. Mm -hmm. And she said she's from a very big tribe, but unfortunately her tribe has banned yeah. genetics. And, yeah, um, genetic research. Yeah. And I love discussing with her that if she became a genetic counselor or another or MD geneticist, that one of the things that she could do then is be the person who is um, talking to the tribal leaders and talking mm -hmm. to the clinical providers about how genetics could be used for preventive health services mm -hmm. in their tribe. Mm -hmm. um, and that would be really a big um, uh boom for their tribe because they could then use genetics to prevent disease, mm -hmm. um, which would uh, save the money but also save a lot of uh, anguish. And, and Well, and it was also good hearing the point made that they aren't anti-science, they're not anti-research, it's that they're anti-colonialism, anti-exploitation, and making that distinction. And um, coming from Hawaii, I think we, working with the Native Hawaiian population, mm -hmm. We definitely have experienced mainland researchers coming in and collecting samples and mm -hmm. um, actually never recontacting mm -hmm. our uh, Native Hawaiian communities to tell them what they did mm -hmm. with their samples and mm -hmm. then, you know, suddenly seeing a publication somewhere. Um, and that has really made our local population really wary of participating in the research because that is not, they're very good at sharing, mm -hmm. uh, they just don't want to be taken advantage right. of, I right. think. We're fortunate because we do a lot of con community consultation, as you mm -hmm. know, in our program, and um, we have a lot of trust working at the health department mm -hmm. in our community, yeah. trusts the health department a lot. So the good part is we're one of the few health departments that actually have genetics professionals in it. Mm -hmm. um, so we can at least oversee um, people coming into the state or even people in the state that mm -hmm. want to take advantage of our indigenous population. They mm -hmm. have someone to reach out to and say, to ask, like, is this okay? Or mm -hmm. what are they doing with this? So mm -hmm. I think at least we can be helpful. And I'm hoping that we can help other communities also have, um, you know, ability to contact genetics professionals that they trust mm -hmm. to be able to know um, if the research they're being asked to participate in is ethical and mm -hmm. what's going to be happening and to craft what the consent form will be. Mm -hmm. And going back to the clinical side, it's, it's also nice to be able to dispel misconceptions about the cost of genetic testing now. I mean, I think that's a pervasive 
misconception in all populations, but especially for minority communities, thinking that it's just too expensive and there's no way that they would be able to access it. You know, letting them know that the cost has come down and that insurance will cover things and all of that. Hopefully, we'll be able to help people access services better. Yes, and then of course on the other side, we end up having a lot of people contacting us about the -the over-the-counter direct-to-consumer testing (laughs) because it's cheap, Mm -hmm. and then they ask us about you know what does this this doesn't make any sense Mm -hmm. what's going on here it's saying my ancestry is this or that and then um, explaining to them that most databases have very little data on minorities Mm -hmm. and so what you're getting is what they have. Mm-hmm. which is very, very little. Mm-hmm. So um, in every six months, it will change for you as mm-hmm. they get more minorities into the database. Mm-hmm. So don't pay any attention to what you just got. Right. It's good recreational testing. Right. Take it with a grain of salt. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So. <laughs> well, it was great having this conversation with you today. I, this is not a conversation that we usually have the opportunity to have at work. No. I mean, I'm so excited for all the new activities and all the... Um, new minorities that we hope to get in the profession. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's been really exciting to connect with so many people. It's, it's been an honor. Yeah. And finally, over to Kyle Salisbury and Monica Marvin, who speak about genetic counseling training programs and their personal experiences as young and growing professionals. I'm Monica Marvin, and I am a genetic counselor. I work at the University of Michigan and have a couple of different roles there. My main role is as the associate director of our graduate program in genetic counseling, but I'm also really fortunate to still be able to see patients, and I see patients in our cancer genetics clinic. I'm just curious, how long have you been a GC? I graduated in 1994, so I think... um, what is that? Too many years? I don't know. Yeah. 25, 25 years? Is that yeah. right? That makes me feel... <laughs> okay, let's celebrate. <laughs> yeah. And I'm Kyle Salisbury. I live and work in Wisconsin at Marshfield Medical Center, and um, I've been there about four and a half years. I graduate from the University of Michigan program as well. I've been practicing going on about four and a half years in a general genetics clinic. So I had... A, One of the first questions, Monica, that I want to ask you as the Associate Program Director of the University of Michigan program is just how you've seen the admissions process change over the years and maybe the training of genetic counselors. I'll start with the admissions process, and I'll say that um, the most one of the most dramatic changes is really just seeing a change in the number of applicants that are applying to programs, Mm -hmm. and not just to our program, but nationally when we look at data from other programs. Um, there's been a huge increase in the number of applicants that are applying, um, which I think has also made it more competitive for applicants who are trying to get into programs. Um, We haven't made too many dramatic changes, really, in how we, the requirements that we have for students that are applying to our graduate programs, but I think that over the last decade, we've really, in an effort to focus on getting a more diverse student body. I think we've developed some more flexibility in how we evaluate applicants. Mm -hmm. Flexibility and just looking at different aspects of the students and not... Right. So I think um, maybe thinking about advocacy experience is one Mm -hmm. place that I can describe that. So I think um, 10 or 15 years ago, we had a pretty rigid sense of what we meant by advocacy experience, and we were looking for... Uh, applicants who had really devoted a significant amount of time to um, 
supporting individuals in different settings that were either face-to-face or Mm -hmm. phone-based. And now, at least at our program, and I think at many other programs, there's a lot more recognition that not all applicants from different backgrounds can, if they're working full-time or have families, maybe can take advantage of the same sorts of advocacy experiences. So um, we're looking at applicants who've participated in things like the crisis text line, Mm -hmm. which I have to admit, Initially, I was kind of skeptical about, well, we don't text with our patients, (laughs) typically, although maybe that's going to change. Um, Anyway, so that's an example of how I think we've tried to be um, more flexible in how we look at applicants. Um, And we've also, I think, again, in our program, been a lot more flexible in how we look at things like GRE scores, Mm -hmm. recognizing that applicants from different backgrounds um, may perform differently on the GRE scores, and that might not actually be reflective of how successful they could be in mm-hmm. our program mm-hmm. or as a genetic counselor. Yeah, I think that's good because when I have students observed from my clinic, like I wouldn't be able to compete with these students anymore. So I'm like, if I would be applying now, I don't think I'd get in. But yeah, I think that holistic aspect is really appropriate. And especially with the initiative of increasing diversity, it's just recognizing that not everyone has maybe the same resources to have kind of those requirements met um, but looking at the whole picture of students yeah I think will really help that initiative that um, is listed on one of the goals for NSGC right Mm -hmm. the other thing I think that um, will hopefully help with diversity within graduate programs is that there's so many different types of graduate programs that are out there right now Mm -hmm. historically um, you know when I was looking at graduate programs 25 years ago, (laughs) uh, you know, you had to be willing to um, pick up and move to the city where the graduate program Mm -hmm. was and be a full-time student and really dedicate those two years of your life to being a graduate student. I think you still need to be tremendously dedicated to be successful in graduate school for genetic counseling, but there's so many different models that are out there right now for genetic counseling graduate programs that don't necessarily require full-time study or moving to a new city. And now they're even saying that there's there's 50 programs, I think they said today, right? So yeah. like you're saying, there's just that many more programs. So not only are there many more graduate programs right now, but there's also a lot of different models in terms of how their curriculum are set up. So historically, most students needed to pick up and move to another city mm-hmm when they were a graduate student and really um, be a full-time student in a new town or whatever. And now there's more and more diversity in terms of options. So people can do programs online. They can have, um, they can live in one city part of the year and another one in another part or be part-time student. So I'm hoping that that also can help with diversity in the profession. Giving more options to people. Giving more options to people who maybe don't have the ability to pick mm-hmm. up and move their life somewhere for two years. An example that we're partnering with the program is to have a second year student with us for the full year where they're doing their clinical training the entire year and then doing kind of distance learning continuing through the program. So like you said, just the different methods too yeah. that people are being trained is yeah. expanding down the traditional way. I'm excited to see what that looks like. It's kind of interesting how the technology and ability to learn remotely is being applied to so many different programs now, mm-hmm. kind of in parallel with what's happening in clinical genetic counseling. Yeah, the way that we see patients and interact with patients, yeah, how that's all changing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Can you tell, so I know that you work in a fairly rural part of mm-hmm. Wisconsin, how you're using telehealth at the Marshall Clinic. Yeah, so telehealth was set up when I started there. They'd already been utilizing that for a number of years. Probably a third of my patients I see by telehealth, and 
It's definitely a great resource for them. My preference as a provider is always, I think, to be in person just for that more human connection that we talk about sometimes able to build empathy um, and just also like usually visual age, body language is kind of lost through the telehealth visit. But for patients, you know, I think some of them would just not come to appointment if they had to drive the three hours to see me. So being able to do it through the telehealth, I think, is greatly increasing the access and lowering those barriers of travel. Um, Some patients can't, you know, easily get transportation or things like that. Um, if it is a long distance away. So something we've been utilizing, I think it's a great resource for patients primarily, even though as a professional, I'm personally not always the most excited about it. I I think though it's a great resource for my patients that I definitely wouldn't want to get rid of it. Mm -hmm. I love being able to use that to meet the patient's needs where they're at physically. Are your telehealth services um, with just audio, like telephone counseling, or audio and visual, or so, a combination of both? Yeah, it is audio and visual. So the way it's set up, they go to a clinic site still, that's our system, and check in like a normal okay. appointment, and then a telehealth nurse, a designated nurse is there with them to kind of um, get everything set up, and um, they usually stay in the room with them or sometimes step out as well. Um, and then as paperwork or follow-up is needed, you know, we can send stuff to the nurse who then kind of helps coordinate on their end any measurements, you know, height and weight, things that we would collect as well. So that's how it's managed. And then sometimes we do like three-way calls if I need an interpreter, whether it's, you know, Spanish or sign language even I've done before, where the interpreter's at a third site and we're all calling in together to the same kind of place. So it's really great, I think, for patients again. Have you seen an increase in how that's utilized since you've been at the Marshall Clinic, or it's been pretty steady? I think it's been pretty steady the same. I think some of the limitation is just because we still do need to do a physical exam for some of our patients, Mm -hmm. so they can't quite be by telehealth. Mm -hmm. That's been one of our more difficulties. I was excited to hear today that the bill being introduced um, would include Medicare also covering the telehealth portion. Yeah, that's super. We've run into those barriers before, so having that bill introduce that would potentially cover that I think would even you know open up the access for those type of patients which is a huge portion of what we see being in rural Wisconsin there you know patients with Medicare Medicaid so seeing something like that bill being uh, potentially passed and submitted is really exciting for me so we talked a little bit about the you know initiative of diversity and how mm-hmm. you're saying you really try to look at um, students at a holistic perspective mm-hmm. um, which I think is in line with that fourth point of the strategic goals of um, including diversity and inclusion with the profession, I guess. Are there other things the program is doing or with training to kind of increase that or awareness or things like that? So I think a, one really important goal that we have is to try and make awareness of the profession as of genetic counseling um, something that people from underrepresented minorities are aware of. Um, genetic counseling is not yet a household word, especially in individuals from underrepresented minorities. So... Um, being able to recruit diverse students to our programs requires that we actually build the pipeline so that we have people aware of the program, mm-hmm. preparing appropriately for it, and then and so they actually apply. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I think that there's a lot of efforts going on, and not just from by genetic counselors, um, but from all sorts of different STEM organizations uh, and professionals trying to raise awareness of mm-hmm. different professions in the STEM fields to yeah. people from different backgrounds. Mm-hmm. So. I think we're slowly getting there. And we had talked a little bit about just one of the interesting stats of the UMGCP program is I was the third male genetic counselor, we believe, um, (laughs) up until 2015. But now there's been 
six or seven after me. Yeah. Could be right. Right. So just when from I twenty fifteen on. Yeah. When I looked at the numbers from our graduate program, which again is just one snapshot between. 1979 and 2015, we had three male genetic counseling students, which is obviously a really small number. But from 2016 to 2019, we've had eight. Mm -hmm. So we've um, been really successful as a profession, I think, in raising awareness of the profession and recruiting mm -hmm. um, males in mm -hmm. addition to, to women into the profession. And so I'm actually curious if you've noticed any difference or what the challenges might have been for you in the past and moving forward as being um, a male. Yeah, in a female-dominated female profession. Primary female, yeah. yeah, I think it wasn't ever anything that was really apparent to me my training as a barrier in many ways. One thing I did, as we kind of talked about diversity earlier a little bit, I really appreciate that they mention in the statement seen and unseen. So I would say seen diversity is obviously like my gender being mm -hmm. male, but that's never been anything that really has impacted me. But I was thinking of that unseen portion that a lot of people probably have. Um, for me, it would have been I'm a very like faith-based person. And I remember at one point I was really challenged with my personal faith and, faith and um, a program I was applying to. And actually was considering maybe not applying to programs any further because I was like, am I going to have to compromise something that to me is kind of my identity and it's an unseen thing. But I was able to work through that. But just kind of thinking of that as a voice and a contribution I have of diversity that's unseen to a lot of people. So I really appreciate. But where my gender is kind of like the more obvious, uh -huh. well, there's the one male in the room and, you know, um, everyone always knew my name in the program because I was the only male. <laughs> right. But uh, outside of that, I don't feel like that ever impacted my training or experience really um, in a noticeable way for me personally, even right. though others, I'm sure it has. So that's an interesting point. And I wonder, um, is there an avenue for you to identify other genetic counselors that are part of NSGC who may also, you know, have a real strong faith base? To because again, it's not something yeah, it's kind of obvious unseen. on the outside. Mm -hmm. um, are there ways that you're able to connect? Or I don't feel that way currently. That there is one, um, and obviously, faith is diverse in and of itself. You know right. what that means for different people. Um, but I don't feel there's a significant avenue. And I knew there were some points where I would. Um, more pursue counsel through my faith community and what I was going through in the program um, instead of actually through the program avenue or even in my profession now as well. I'm continuing to go through that method instead of kind of internally through NSGC receiving that support. I look elsewhere for kind of as I wrestle through different issues that I experience or conflicts that I feel like I have um, with kind of my personal faith and, you know, the situations that patients are going through, um, different ethical dilemmas that come up through genetics as well. Um, so yeah, I just, well, it just made me recognize because I don't really feel diverse because honestly in the greater U.S. I am a white male, so I'm, a, I'm not diverse. In this profession, my gender does make me diverse, but more impactful, I feel like it's the unseen diversity of my faith that I felt like is more significant to me that most people are not aware of. So it just made me realize I think we all have that diversity. Yeah. Even the Caucasian females, you know, here have that right. unseen diversity that maybe is under-recognized that we all carry. And are we willing to just be that voice to share whatever that diversity is that we bring to make the profession more, more beautiful, I guess, you know, more inclusive. Um, and the ultimate goal, I think, is that we can each connect with our patients better. A question I had for you, okay. transition a little bit. So you've worked a lot with licensure 
for the state of Michigan. And congratulations. It's gone through, right? Yes. It, it's yes, official. Yes. We don't have our licenses yet. Yeah. Yet, don't but have the licenses, but yes. Um, it's moving forward. We, yes. So um, I have been involved together with a co- couple of other really key people in the state mm-hmm. of Michigan, especially Angie Trepanier and Cheryl Harper. Mm-hmm. We were involved in licensure efforts for um, well over a decade, um, actually probably close to 20 years, and um, had introduced multiple bills and had worked with multiple um, legislators mm-hmm. through multiple um, administrative, you know, through multiple governors and um in December of 2018, finally, our licensure bill was signed into law. It was really on almost the last day. Yeah. It was December 28th or 29th, mm-hmm. something like that. So that was um, probably one of the, my most proud accomplishments yeah. is to stick with it. So um, we've been working on the rules and regulations, and hopefully we'll actually have our licenses mm-hmm. um, within the next year or so. So that being something you've worked on and been part of for so long advocating for as the you know nsgc has that those mm-hmm. initiatives as well and continuing to have momentum i think as a profession how do you see that you know shaping the future of genetic counseling um what are you excited about you know licensure being passed and then maybe on the federal level as well having that bill passed well i think um both licensure and also um, recognition by cms can have a a few really, really um, important implications and impacts on the profession. First and foremost, our expertise will be recognized, will be recognized as independent providers, will be able to, um, not immediately, but in time, be mm-hmm. able to be reimbursed for the services that we provide, and that will only open more doors to genetic access. counselors, to yeah, access mm-hmm. institutions, and healthcare providers will be able to hire more genetic counselors, and more people be able to benefit from the services that that we provide. So mm-hmm. I think its importance really can't be underestimated mm-hmm. when you think about what it means to have such an important profession not be recognized mm-hmm. um, and not be reimbursable by by Medicare and by other large payers. I mean, that's a, mm-hmm. a big barrier to care right now. So mm-hmm. fingers are crossed. <laughs> yeah. And I just want to say I really appreciate individuals like you who have really headed that movement Mm-hmm. I live in a state where there isn't current licensure, but there are that is in the process, and I know there are a lot of individuals in my state who really have taken that on, and it's a significant effort, as I'm sure you can <laughs> attest yeah. to. It was an important goal for our state, and it's funny because sometimes I think um, I'm not a runner, and I look at people who run marathons, and I think, oh, that's so awesome that they can set a goal, mm-hmm. and they can stick with it, and I wish I had that in me, and my husband said, Think about what you did for licensure. You had a goal and you stuck with it for a really, really long time. And you eventually got there, even though you had setbacks along the way. So, yeah, definitely. So that was. So put one of those (laughs) bumper stickers on your car, 13.1. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, thanks for talking with me today, Monica. Yeah, this was a really fun activity. It was great to be able to, first of all, catch up with you, but also to hear your perspectives. That concludes season two of the NSGC podcast series. Thank you for joining us this year as we explored leading voices and best practices in genetic counseling. Have an idea for an episode in 2020? Visit us online at www.nsgc.org forward slash podcasts to submit your idea today. We're your hosts, Kalita Leoclot, and Kate Wilson. See See you next year. year.